You're listening to the Transport for the North podcast. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Transport for the North podcast. A very special episode today. Uh, We're going to bring you in full our interview with Richard George. He's chair of DFT OLR Holdings. Uh, That's the Northern Trains to you and me. Um, You may have heard excerpts of the interview with Richard that I did a couple of weeks ago over the past couple of uh, podcasts. But in case you weren't able to catch any of that or you want to listen to the whole thing in full, uh, special edition today of the podcast, we're just going to bring you that from start to finish. So enjoy. Uh, I'm Richard George. Uh, I'm currently um, the non-executive chairman of uh, the DFT's Operator Less Resort Holding Company, or DOHL. Uh, So as chairman of DOHL, I chair the holding company, which has currently got uh, LNER as part of that group and Northern Trains as part of that group. And we also have a very small leasing company as part of that group as well. So that's the, it's the government's holding company for companies taken back into the public sector. So we'll start by um, talking a bit about your background then. So how yep. you got to, to this place today. So you've obviously been involved in transport for, for a long time on various yep. projects. Was that something you always had aspirations to get involved in rail when you when you were studying and leaving uh, university behind? Um, no, not at all. Never crossed my mind I would end up on the railways. I came out of university and was looking for a decent management training scheme because I didn't know what words like finance and marketing and things meant. Uh, and I thought I ought to. So I'd looked for a decent training scheme and I ended up working for the National Freight Corporation, as it was then. And one of the companies that was in that was a company called Freightliners. Uh, and I joined Freightliners as part of that training scheme. And um, and then I became part of the railways by accident. Um, and what were the key challenges in that industry at that time? I won't allude to how many um, years ago that, that may have been. But um, <coughs> what, <laughs> well, what kind of thing were you working on at For that the point? record, it was 43 years ago. Um, yeah. What were we doing at the time? Well, um, the railways was struggling at the time, um, and it was struggling for all sorts of reasons, structural reasons. It, it was um, it, it was not popular with the governments. It was costing an awful lot of money. It was not seen as it was not basically seen as a driver of growth. It was just seen as a spender of money, um, and consequently. I spent the most of my early part of my career um, closing things and making people redundant. Uh, that was the world we were living in at the time. So, so it was a very different world from the world we've been in for the last 30 years or so. Would you say there was a turning point then for transport and for rail investments in particular? Yeah, I think there was. Um, I think it was... In the mid-90s, early to mid-90s, um, where I think structurally British Railways Board at the time actually got its act together in terms of how the organisation was put together. The railways had always, had always had some very, very competent managers. It just collectively, their achievement was awful. I mean, it just was going nowhere. And we're just costing the taxpayer a huge amount of money. The service was rubbish. And structurally, British Railways Board went through a number of changes. And we finally ended up in an organisation which actually began to start moving. And at the time, I, I I was the strategy director for Intercity, as it was at that time. Um, and it really felt like we were beginning to get somewhere. Uh, and we were beginning to turn the tanker around and we were beginning to attract people back to railways and we got to a position where the way the accounts were done at the time which is always questionable intercity went from a thumping great loss into actually making profit and things were going so well we probably got privatized bang so that was the end of that process um but actually so a lot of 
ever since privatisation, um, it's been on the up. Railways have been on the up ever since, but actually that process started just before privatisation, in, in my judgment. We'll jump forward a bit later on to sort of present day and, and mm. future investment and, and pick back up on that. I just want to stick with some of your previous um, your previous roles in the industry. So you've worked on HS1, uh, obviously a big infrastructure project. What were some of the challenges you faced on that and some of the lessons learned that you'd say you've taken forward with you through, through later roles? I worked uh, at that time for Eurostar, um, and so Eurostar was the end user of HS1, if you like, as opposed to, I wasn't actually working for HS1. At the time, it was called CTRL, Channel Tunnel Rail Link. Um, and my job was actually to transfer Eurostar from Waterloo to St Pancras. So if you like, I was the, the migration director for moving the operation from Waterloo to St Pancras. And in doing so, was setting the specification for St Pancras Station and for Ebbsfleet Station and working with all the contractors to get the job done in a way that worked for the operator as well as the builders. That was the thing I personally learned most from that exercise, was the difference between the engineering perspective of getting the job done and getting it over and done with and actually having something that works for, as far as the operator and the customer is concerned and of course they're very very different things um, and uh, I learned a lot about that relationship between the contractors and actually the operator who's going to use it at the end of it and the challenging interface you get as a project is being completed and anybody who's built an extension to their house will know that the difference between what the builder says is ready and what you domestically believe is ready are two very different things. Well, it's exactly the same with a big railway project. Exactly the same. And I learned that in spades with that one because it was a huge project. St Pancras Station is a magnificent structure which made it very, very complicated in the way which was done. But actually, uh, it all worked perfectly. The other thing I learned at the time and I think we all learned from St Pancras, was Britain can do big projects and get them right. At the time, it, nobody believed it would work. Nobody believed it would be on time. Nobody believed it would be as hugely successful as it was because we had decided as a nation we couldn't do stuff like this. That's really interesting. Do you think that's something that the industry needs to remember in in present times as we're yes. looking at NPR HS2 to remind ourselves that we we can and we have done these things before? We can and we have done these things before. We 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 actually are much, much better at these things than we give ourselves credit for. Um, I think St Pancras was a turning point and HS1 was a turning point. From the success of that, we went on to the Olympics and I went on to the Olympics as well. But it was it was at the time it was a huge boost of confidence to the railways and to transport and to the country in terms of major projects. We we are very competent to do these things. If you look at the projects that we've had difficulties with, they're usually for the same reason. If you look at um, Crossrail as a classic example at the moment, which is a massive, technically brilliant project. The difficulties we've had with it are always the same as the interfaces between track and train and signalling and trains become more complicated. It's getting those interfaces to work is always the most complicated bit. And the other thing I would argue about Crossrail is I think um, the financial and contractual structure was wrong in the first place. But that's a personal belief. Others would argue absolutely violently that it was the right way of doing it. I believe it was absolutely the wrong way of doing it, but there you go. That's a different issue. You uh, mentioned there um, your work with the Olympic and Paralympic Games then in 2012. Mm. You were director of transport. What what did that role entail and how, how different or, or, or similar is it when you're planning transport for a single large event as opposed to, um, sort of, you know, more long term transport planning where it's you know a permanent a permanent piece of work 
Well, there's one obvious difference, which is um, with a project like the Olympics, you know five or six years in advance at what date and at what time it starts. And so one of the three big variables of a project is removed. You've only got three to play with. One is time, one is money, and the other is quality. Well, you've, time you've taken out the game. You know to the minute when it's going to start six years in advance. The rest of them becomes money, and we didn't have any money. Um, <laughs> so we, we just had the easy bit to do, get it right. Yeah. Um, it is, in many respects, it's the same as planning any other project. You, you need to be very clear what you're trying to do by when and how you're going to do it like any other project um but the content of it is a very different thing from running uh, a company or running a project for a company or an authority because at the end of it you finish there is no joy in finishing the olympics and having a million pound in the bank because you've 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 wasted that million pound you need to spend every penny on getting it done and go bust on the final ceremony because on the closing date that's it there is nothing else to do you've finished there is some wrapping up to do but actually so i went i went as, as a transport director at the beginning of 2011 i had 25 staff but the beginning of 2012, I had 400 staff. For the games itself, if you included all of the volunteer drivers and things, I had um, I had about 15,000 staff. Um, by a day after the closing ceremony of the Paralympics, I was down to 30 staff again. Because every penny spent after that was wasted money mm -hmm. it was we were just paying to sweep up after that um and so it's a very different dynamic from a normal cover the other thing that's very different is the transport everybody looks at the huge numbers of visitors and the spectators going to and from the games and people think of that's the transport that is that is the transport that occupied about a tenth of my time because actually most of my time as the director of transport was worrying about the bus systems and the car systems for getting the athletes and the broadcasters to the games, to their events, the officials, their accommodation, all, all the stuff around that. Because no athletes, no event. No cameras, and it didn't happen. If the cameras broadcasters aren't there, it might as well have never happened. So actually, you learn quite quickly that the broadcasters and the and the athletes are the things that matter. But the amount of noise you get from VIPs is unbelievable, unbelievable. So so actually, you find that the world becomes a very closed world of the internal transport, which is what you occupy your time with as the director of transport, rather than the real world transport, which is what everybody else is worried about. And how do you how do you create a legacy out of something like that then? How do you learn from that and apply it to normal transport planning in you know everyday life? Um, I think it's very difficult to get a transport legacy. Um, I think there are all sorts of sporting legacies that people worked on quite hard throughout the games. Um, I think if there was a legacy from uh, the London Games, there were there were two three things. One is there were bits of infrastructure that were put in place for the games which remain there, which is valuable. So the, the 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 redoing of places like Stratford Station in the East End, and um, various bits of infrastructure that were put in place in order to facilitate the games which which helped but the biggest legacy i think was actually london transport tfl came out of it with a hugely enhanced reputation 
Um, and we worked hard on making sure that the whole, because it was a public transport games, it wasn't a private, it was a public transport games. Um, and much to the chagrin of a number of the Olympics people um, who really didn't get it at all and just wanted to know where their BMW was. Um, he, he, the, the legacy of the games was a hugely enhanced reputation for TFL. Um, and it gave them a lot more self-confidence to do a lot of things on the back of it. And it became actually, for a brief window of time, quite a sexy thing to do, being in transport. Then he asked it about fortnight, but, it, you know, for a while it was really quite good. Um, so so the biggest legacy, I think, was confidence. And the confidence, again, that, you know what, Britain can do big events. Britain can do big infrastructure projects. projects. Britain can do big stuff and really do it rather well when it decides it wants to. And it won. The, the Games was unquestionably, technically, the best Games that have ever been put on without any shadow day. There's only been one since, so I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> and and has do you think that that learning, that insight, that experience, has that applied to other sort of mass transport sports events? And thinking of things like I was in um, Yorkshire when the Tour de France Grand Depart yeah. came to town a few yeah. years ago. Yeah. Um, have other sporting events on a a, a, not quite as large as that, but a large scale, do you think? Have they learned from that? Have they found anything new? Uh, I think what they've probably found is confidence. And, and they've also learned that there are all, what you, you do have to do is to get everybody on side. And, and just as with some of the jobs I do now, transport director for the games was as much about stakeholder management as it was about logistics. Because actually getting all the stakeholders on site today, I mean, you can't you can't do a Tour de France around Yorkshire unless Yorkshire County Council thinks it's a good idea. Yeah, you, you, you have to get everybody involved and you have to get people in support. Otherwise, you've got a problem on your hands. Um, and and I think I think I think we're much better at that than uh, in understanding that we used to think this was just about logistics and and engineering. It's not. It's it's about bringing everybody with you in communities and stakeholders and everything as well. Um, and I think, I think, I think there's also, because of the games, there, there are a core of people now in this country who got experience from the games of understanding how to put on games. I mean, I've got colleagues and friends who, who are scattered all around the world running events. Um, and a number of them, really learn what they were doing from London. In the London Games, we had people who'd done it in Sydney. We had people who'd done it in uh, Vancouver. And we had, you know, but we didn't have any people who'd done it in Beijing because we didn't learn anything from Beijing, basically. Different, different context. So, yeah, I think I think it's a very valuable for lots of things. The context is so different, though. Context is very different. Let's move on then. Um, and context yep. brings us nicely to um, the present day. Mm -hmm. So um, leading question. We know what the answer is going to be here, I think. Uh, biggest challenges we face on the transport network in, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> today. I think it begins with a C. I think it begins with a C, yeah. Um, and I think, I think we need to just stop and think for a minute where we were in February compared with where we are now and where we were in February March it was very clear to me what the issues were for Northern and um, and also very clear that some of them were systemic and some of them have a very very long genesis um, <clears throat> some of the problems for Northern are were, were the same problems that were prevalent before anything was ever privatised. Um, and that says a lot about um, the whole structure of the economy of the UK and the whole structure of the way in which organisations are actually largely London-centric. Um, so I think structurally there were lots of things we knew we were going to have to do with Northern. Um, 
they sort of boil down to, yeah, okay, get the trains to run on time. Get the performance right. Yeah, absolutely. If there's one thing you learn as a railway manager pretty early on is that if performance is going well, everything's going well. <laughs> you can actually start thinking. It's, you know, as opposed to just spending all day, every day firefighting. Um, so getting the performance right is is absolutely essential because nothing else works until you do. Your marketing doesn't work. Your industrial relations don't work. Your people get confused. It's it's nothing works, you know. Um, so so that was essential. Um, we had plans uh, about how we were going to do that. We knew how we were going to do that. We also knew that some of those things were likely to cause some rows. Um, that was not a surprise to me, having been through a number of meetings in a uh, in a consultancy role in addition to what I do now. Uh, so I was well aware of some of the issues. Um, and of course, then COVID came along. And suddenly the world looks very different. Um, but inherently, the same issues are still there underneath. We still have the same problem um, that um, we were trying to get uh, a quart out of a pint bottle or a quart into a pint bottle in the case of the Castle Corridor um, and uh, trying to get too much out of a system that wasn't really designed to provide that much for all sorts of very, very good reasons. And the very, very good reasons being we needed to get more out of the system because we need to provide more transport, because we need to provide more capacity, we needed to provide more trains. And so people set about doing it, but nobody put the foot in the ball and said, actually, we haven't got enough track and signals to do this. Um, uh, and the, you can pick the bones at how we got there for a long time. The issue was how do we get back again? Now, in a funny sort of way, COVID has solved some short-term problems very quickly because, as you will have noticed, the trains are running terribly punctually at the moment. Um, it just goes to show, doesn't it, that, you know, um, how easy it can be. Yeah, but actually this has got a lot to do with the pressure being taken off the system. You take the pressure off the system and, oh, look, it can work. Um, so on the one hand, miraculously, we've solved the punctuality problem. But of course, we've now got ourselves a much bigger and very different problem, which is, yeah, but um, how do we get people back using the system again? Because that's what we want them to do. Because all the time they're not using it, the finances are shot to bits. And um, if the finances are shot to bits, so is everything else. I'm, I'm, I'll ask the question. I don't suppose there's an answer, but what is the answer to that? Then how do we go from, you know, a system that that works but nobody wants to, or is actually being discouraged from using it? How do we marry that with passenger confidence, maintaining reliability as more people start to? use services then again no easy answer i guess no easy answer but it, it, we have to be very conscious about what decisions we take at each stage in a perfect world in a perfect world what would happen now is customers will start regaining their confidence passengers will want to start using the railways again it will coincide with vaccines coming along, social distancing disappearing, and it's being able to gently push the service back up at a rate at which we can keep in sync the performance and the capabilities of the system. And it will all miraculously or gently go on the same upward gentle trajectory at the same time. Mm. That would be fantastic. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not going to be like that uh, because we don't know when we get a vaccine. We don't know how long social distancing is going to last. We don't know how quickly people will want to come back. And in a very practical sense, we cannot expect Treasury 
um, to be patient for a very, very long time on how much money the railways is costing. Because at the moment, we're spending an awful lot of money carting around an awful lot of fresh air. And um, my early experiences of the railway tell me Treasury doesn't live with that for very long. <laughs> uh, I don't know why I'm laughing, because it could be horrible. Uh, but but that's that's where we are. That's where we are. But there have been um, some positives. You mentioned the um, the performance statistics, yeah. you know, reliability. Yeah. Um, a new timetable was introduced, and we all remember the um, the challenges of the timetable a couple of years ago. That um, I think it's fair to fair to say caused chaos across the network. Yeah. So in this instance, new timetables um, have been brought in very smoothly. Um, We've seen some really good examples of operators, bodies like Transport for the North um, and, you know, kind of private sector and other sort of passenger organisations really working well together, particularly in the early stages of COVID, to say these are the services we need because people need to get to New Nightingale hospitals and so on. There have been uh, positives out of this. Absolutely. Um, still many challenges, as you referenced, particularly around uh, passenger confidence and keeping that reliability. How do you see the next few months panning out? The, th- the thing we have to maintain is is the mutual respect and confidence. You're right. The organisations working together has been uh, absolute benefit. It's 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 allowed us actually to reinstill a bit of confidence in the management of Northern because their confidence had been shot to bits where they where they were. It's not, not a question of whose fault it was. It, it just had been because of the situation they were in. I, I, think, I think the big lesson from all this is how much easier things are to actually manage coherently and manage everybody's expectations when a bit of pressure is taken off the system and taking that pressure off the system allows everything to work properly and allows everybody to plan i won't say plan properly because actually the planning teams of the railway have been working overtime for the last four or five months as they've been changing the timetables all the time in a way the systems are not really designed to do uh, which you know doesn't help but but it just goes to show how critical it is in terms of the amount of pressure on the system. Um, and what we haven't had is huge engineering works interrupting it as well, which, also, <laughs> you know, we've got all that to come. Don't worry. Um, so so I think I think I think. There are positives, you're right. We have to main, we have to focus on maintaining those positives, and therefore, there's a often used expression now about build back better. Yeah, we need to build back carefully, very carefully, because we could lose we could lose impetus very easily if we build back incorrectly, um, and that's that's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a challenge. Um, my, you know the. Who knows what capacity we need two years, three years from now? One would like to think in two or three years from now, we'll be back to where we were in January this year. What does the future of decarbonisation for the rail network look like, do you think? Well, hopefully um, we can make sure that the railways is seen as on the side of the angels. And that means, you know, we we have got the opportunity. We I think I think the railways are seen as quintessentially green transport compared with everybody having a private car. Good, big tick in the box. But actually, we can also do much more about decarbonisation. And and the quicker we manage to get out of having diesels, the better. If we can't get out of diesels, converting them to hybrids and batteries and whatever then the quicker we can get on with that process the better because because it's it it's what we need to do and we're well positioned to do it um and and the fact i mean public transport by its very nature is a more efficient way of using energy than everybody having their own private transport ergo it's the right 
direction of travel, which is what's so difficult with coronavirus and people retreating into their own little space in their own little car. It is deeply unhelpful on the, on this wider picture. So there always has got a role to play, that big role to play in that. And we need to push that agenda quite hard because, um, uh, but, you know, like a lot of things, it has some costs up front. Well, yeah. Yep. Speaking of cost, then, um, recent announcement was the uh, Transpennine route upgrade, yep. £589 million, pounds, I think it was, for electrification. And, and also, again, another thing that we've spoken about uh, several times already is around um, sort of capacity and, and congestion. So that, that TRU um, work also brings in new tracks so that, you know, yep. faster trains don't get stuck behind slower trains. What was your reaction to that announcement from uh, from the Transport Secretary? Well, um, TRU is a good thing with a capital G and a capital T. You know, it, for all the reasons you've just outlined, it, it is it is part of the sort of investment in capacity and infrastructure that we need to further all of the agenda on everything. Um, I do, I do have a little worry that goes with it, which is. Uh, somebody once described TAU to me as building a motorway uh, to go from one traffic jam to another. Uh, and unless we sort out the capacity of Manchester and sort out the capacity of Leeds while we're at it, you're just going to go from one congested area to another congested area quite quickly. Listen, if they're going to announce 600, whatever it is for TAU, good, good. What next? <laughs> well, that, that's my next question then what next and you've touched on congestion we know it very well in Leeds we know it yeah. very well on the Castlefield corridor and it has yeah. that ripple effect yeah. um, what would be next on your investment shopping list um, I've been reasonably closely involved in the uh, the task force looking at what we do with Manchester um, so there are a number of investments that need to be made in and around Manchester. A lot of the, a lot of these things are a combination of lots of different things. Um, when you look at the really big projects like um, NPR and HS2 for that matter, these big set piece things create huge capacity shifts. And they create huge new opportunities. My worry with all of them is always, yeah, but don't do what the French did. You have to invest in the stuff around them as well. Otherwise, you, you've, you've, you've created a different set of problems. The French spent 20 years building a magnificent high-speed railway network. They ignored their regional railways. They ignored Paris and got to the end and then about 10 years ago realised that their regional railways were falling apart and the infrastructure of central Paris was such that it was no longer a world-class city. You have to bear that in mind with these big, these big projects, very sexy, attract the attention. I agree with all that, but actually it's the connectivity in and around them and to them and all the stuff that contributes to it. And whether it's trams or railways or buses, it doesn't matter. But you just have to make sure that all the connectivity goes with them because otherwise they become a sink instead of a distribution point. Uh, so I think, I think um, uh, it will be a hundred small schemes I would vote for in favour of any one big one and you know it's, it's the things like platform zero at leeds which will help you don't go need to go and build a new station in leeds you need to build bits of extensions to platforms and a few more points here it's it's those are the sorts of things that you need to keep things because then you allow technology to build extra things that allow you to use it better and actually you know the the the, the problem the North has is, is also its strength. One of the problems the, the North has is that it had a huge amount of railways built by the Victorians 
for essentially freight purposes. So you've got some huge bits of Victorian infrastructure scattered all over the place with railway lines all over the place, which is a huge bonus if you want to use them, but you've got huge cost in maintaining big bits of Victorian infrastructure. I mean, the last fly-through I saw at TRU, what struck me was places where we're doubling the track but actually, we've got a viaduct already built to that scale to do it because it was built there. And, and we spent 60 years taking tracks out and then we're putting them back in again. And that's really quite interesting because it's the story of the railways in my lifetime. You know, the first half of my career was shutting things and making people redundant. And the second half of my career has been recruiting people and spending money. It's very different. Um, and 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 that's 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 where we are now. We've got huge Victorian infrastructure, which is expensive to maintain, but it actually allows us to do something about the capacity. And I want to touch on um, the future in terms of ticketing as well. You've you've, you've mentioned sort of yeah. new technologies a couple of times, and yeah. um, again, changing travel patterns because of yeah. COVID. Many people who were office based are now working from home much more. They no yeah. longer need a three-month, yep. six-month season pass because if they're only using it two days a week, it's not good value for money anymore. Yep. Um, a new flexi ticket was introduced yep. recently on the uh, Leeds Harrogate line. Leeds Harrogate, yeah, Leeds Harrogate. Um, yeah. And what's a, the... as, a, as a trial. As a, a trial, trial. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about how um, how technology in that way in, in, in flexi tickets is going to... Um, support passenger confidence, help the railways um, sort of come back as, as people need them in, in the way that they need them? Well, I think I think the short answer is we have to make sure that it does. The point is that the technology of ticketing and the technology of distribution has moved hugely and rapidly over the last 10 years, far outstripping the railway's ability to cope with it. So actually, the expectation levels on ticketing and where you get your ticket from and how you use it and how you pay for it is has developed a life of its own, nothing to do with what the railways thought it was going to do. So, that I mean, the, the whole smart card applications and apps and all that sort of stuff. Well, most of the systems that we're using now, we were inventing about 10 years. Well, nobody's inventing stuff like that. That got invented well outside the railways. And we have to make sure that actually we've got a generation of people who expect, who just expect to be able to pick up their phone, go bop, bop, bop like that and have the ticket and off you go. That's what that's what the world is now expecting. It is not the way the railway systems were ever built. And the reinvestment in those systems and the refashioning of those systems is going to be an interesting task because actually people now will demand that flexibility. Because if they can't find that flexibility, well, they'll just find ways of creating it for themselves by saying, well, I'm not going to go in on Monday then. So, it, it, you know, but the problem has always been as an industry at an industry level has always been flexibility for the customer. Almost certainly means less money coming in as far as Treasury is concerned. Um, that's a difficult one. That's a difficult one because we all know that in the long run, keeping customers happy is what you need to do. And you need to keep customers wanting to come back because, and they're only going to come back if they think they're getting a good deal, etc. So in the long run, you have to run with that. But it means in the short term, you're almost certainly going to take a revenue hit. Though we bemoan in this country that, you know, we, will, we only get a five-year, you know, um, uh, funding grant for for the control periods for network rail, and we only get you know the, the franchises of a certain length of time. The rest of it, that length of financial certainty is much much greater than most railways have in any other country, because they have to go through annual spending plans, which is what we used to have to go through with British Rail, and believe me, that creates all sorts of strange behaviours. 
you know, come 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 the first week of March, people are spending money all over the place because if it isn't spent by the end of March, you've lost it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's why, you know, get all the potholes filled absolutely, in second week absolutely. of March. Yeah, March, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so all that sort of stuff is what happens, um, which is why all these, anything that extends the funding timescale and gives it some certainty is hugely beneficial to an industry like the railways, where basically most of the assets are 30 years life. Uh, and and only, I think the biggest change in the last couple of years is that the market is changing so quickly and COVID has changed, made a complete change in the market. And markets don't normally, we don't normally bargain on the markets changing quite that quickly. But they're changing very quickly at the moment. So um, we'll think about wrapping up with a, a final thought on those sorts of uh, timelines then um, and predicting the future, Richard. Get your crystal ball out for me. Mm -hmm. One year's time, three years time, 20 years time. Where are we going to be? What are the railways going to look like? How are people going to be getting well, around? Let, let, let's start with 50 years time because it, it, it's instructed to say that. One of the things I used to have to uh, persuade people of in a previous job was that they still needed railways at all. If you're building railways in places like Canada, which I was for a while, and you go in and saying to people, well, what you need is a mass transit system for this city. And I said, well, why would we do that? We've got people like Elon Musk inventing cars that drive themselves and... What, what do we need all that? That's that's 19th century technology. Yeah. I was flummoxed by that argument to begin with, but actually the more I thought about it, the more you look at it. We are still going to be running railways in 50 years' time. Make no mistake. We will still be running railways. They're 150, 200 years old now, and they're getting more and more sophisticated, but actually they still do something fundamentally, which most of these other things can't do which is move a very large number of people very safely. Nothing else can do that. And, yeah, you can do all sorts of things without drivers in the cabs and all the rest of it, of cars. You can even do it with underground trains, and you can even do it with with um, high-speed trains if you really wanted to. You don't need to drive in a cab. But you know what? When I'm flying a, in a jet, I'd still much rather there was a pilot at the front than or be on auto. And I think the same is true of railways and the same is true ultimately of cars, which is why the driver's cars will not take over the world because actually people like to think there's somebody who can intervene when things go wrong. Operator of last resort, if you like. Yeah, <laughs> human being, human being. Um, and, and actually, um, the railways are very efficient at moving a lot of people safely. So 50 years from now, we'll still have railways. Step one, therefore, carry on investing. That's the point. Therefore, carry on investing. It is not good money after bad. It is good money after good. Keep investing. Um, and therefore, in a, a year from now, I think we'll probably be um, still pondering how long is it going to take to get back to January, February of 2020 um but we'll have a lot more knowledge and experience of what has happened in the intervening year to be able to predict it better um i think we'll probably be back but probably only at about 80 percent of the volumes that we were at but that's um i mean for somebody like speaking from from personal experience um January, February experience of commuting from Warrington to Manchester was mm. not good. It was not no. a pleasant experience. Yeah. You know, I don't want to go back to Jan to yeah. Feb situation. Yeah. yeah. And you might find that with only 80% of the people there, it's actually a lot more pleasant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the pressure comes off the system in all sorts of ways. Yeah. But that's that that's then another Correct. another part of the the passenger yeah. confidence and willingness to go back on the railway. If I sit here and think Absolutely. I'm working from home, I don't want to go and stand like a sardine Correct. on that train Correct. into into Correct. town. Correct. So 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 80% is is my personal guess. 
um, I think you could uh, you could put forward a pretty good case that says it will only be 60 percent. I think it'll be more than that because generally we tend to bounce back from these things reasonably well, but actually it will it will still take three years to get back to 100. And this is assuming we don't get a second wave and a third wave and a, et cetera. Um, so, I, but I don't think we will go back to the performance problems we had before because we won't let it. It will cause some grief here and there. It will mean that some trains don't get put back in, that people would like to be put back in. So some of the some of the discussions we're already having with Road North Committee and TFN that the task force is having about what trains should and shouldn't be in the timetables for December 20 and December 21. Those sort of arguments are not going to go away. Um, uh, in some senses, COVID has made those arguments easier because because actually at the moment we don't need those trains. So it's sort of it's easier to not put them back than take them out. When, so, but that's a, that's a that's a that's a temporary issue. I hope. Um, so three years from now, I think we will probably be. Um, back in volume terms to roughly where we were. Um, but I do think that it will manifest itself slightly differently in the way in which the loads are spread. And we will have to be much more judicious about the way the trains are built back in and what the length of the trains is, etc., as opposed to just going back to where we were. We can't go back to where we were. It wasn't working or it wasn't working in a way that was satisfactory for anybody. Um, so, so I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot more optimistic, can I say, about the railways of 2040 now than I was 30 years ago, looking at what the railways would be like in 2020. Because in 30 years ago, in 1990, you know, we were still mid 80s i was still fighting battles about whether we should tarmac over most of these railway lines and turn them into coachways i mean there was a very vigorous campaign launched to to convert the chalton line into a into a coachway into central london why are we spending all this money on victorian railway lines that was that was only 30 years ago so I'm an awful lot more optimistic. I mean, you know, my my as I say, the early part of my career was spent closing things down and making people redundant. We're in a much happier place than that. We just have to make sure that we build better from where we are today, uh, because we 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 mustn't make the mistakes we've we've made along the line. Most of the mistakes we you look at 2018, the mistake of May 2018 was people trying to do too much too quickly to get to somewhere that they wanted to be but actually couldn't get there they'd, they'd forgotten that there wasn't enough room to do it um, and and we now have systems designed to stop anybody having that much authority to say no <laughs> When I was a, when I was a youth, the regional operations manager would have just thrown you out the room if you'd said you were going to run more trains through. The regional operations manager said, "No, you're not." End of conversation. Well, and there's nobody could do that. We've got regulators, and we've got DFT, and we've got all sorts of people with with their aura in as to what should happen. The trouble is, somebody has to stand up and say, we "Can't do that. Stop it." So we mustn't collectively let it happen again. One of the things that's immensely more complicated now than it was, and I'll say this quite deliberately, back in my day running railways, I I run administrations these days. I used to run railways back in the day. Um, is that what we what we expect of railway managers now is infinitely more complicated than when I was a frontline railway manager. We expect them to be politicians. We expect them to deal with the media and the press, and we expect them to deal with stakeholders, powerful stakeholders, with powerful opinions about what should be done with them. 
you know, 30, 40 years ago, if you were a road manager, you got on with running the railway. That was it. If you were going to change the timetable, you changed it. You didn't have to go and ask anybody, apart from the regional operations manager who tell you to bugger off. You, know, you, 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 just, you just got on with it and did it. And, um, and it's a much more complicated, much more democratic world that we live in. And that's good. That's fine. Because actually, the railways should be there to serve what, what the local political and community needs are, not the other way around. And the railway, trouble with British Railways Board was it, got, it began to think it was in charge of what people needed, not there to deliver what people wanted. So responding to stakeholder and community needs is absolutely what the railways is there for. But that makes doing it infinitely more complicated because you can't just decide and get on with it. And it makes things much slower. So the Secretary of State was recently talking about it's ridiculous to take 55 weeks to change a timetable. Yeah, it is. Of course you can do it in six weeks. You can do it in six weeks if you're not going to consult with anybody about what it should look like. If you're not going to go through a statutory consultation process and if you're not going to sit down with the trade unions for 12 weeks and agree what all the rosters look like etc if you're not going to do all that of course you can do it in six weeks but actually you do want to do all those things to do it properly and it's a much more so so i have huge admiration for my frontline colleagues these days it's a much more complicated job than when i did it and i grieve for those guys in northern who were castigated all the way through you know 2018 and 2019 um for something which was fundamentally not their fault okay the can manager we can always manage things better every one of us is guilty of looking at things in hindsight we could have done that better better yeah of course we could but actually it fundamentally wasn't their fault and they got a load of grief uh from all sorts of directions and and you know for a, a hugely complicated job these days christ i better retire <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening guys i hope you enjoyed my chat with richard george from northern there a very insightful look into his career and where he thinks the future of our rail network may be going and um, we'll be back very soon with another episode of the podcast so do tune in for that Remember, you can subscribe on Spotify and on SoundCloud. You'll find the links to all our previous podcasts on there, as well as on our website. And in between episodes, do stay in touch and keep up to date with all things transport in the North by following us on social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, and we're on LinkedIn as well. And don't forget also to sign up to the All Points North weekly newsletter. The link to do that is on the bottom of our website. Thanks again for listening, guys, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Transport for the North podcast. Don't forget you can subscribe on Spotify and SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook for all our latest updates. And join us on our website where you can find all the latest news and sign up to our All Points North newsletter.